0: Welcome to another 4 Minutes of Threads episode. For new listeners, this is an occasional series where we examine the nuclear war film Threads in minute detail, 4 minutes at a time. You don't need to have seen the film to enjoy this. In fact, (laughs) many of my hardcore listeners tell me they've never seen it, because they're too scared. Which I completely understand, it is intensely distressing. I was first exposed to as a toddler which probably explains a lot of my problems okay this is part 15 and we start at 56 minutes in and we have reached the point in the film where the nuclear war has just started we saw in the last episode the dreadful effects of the firestorm and our surviving characters uh, in their various homemade fallout shelters and also the local politicians in their basement beneath Sheffield Town Hall. This section of the film starts with the narrator cutting in.
1: The first fallout dust settles on Sheffield. It's an hour and 25 minutes after the attack. An explosion on the ground at Crewe has sucked up this debris and made it radioactive. The wind has blown it here. This level of attack has broken most of the windows in Britain. Many roofs are open to the sky. Some of the lethal dust gets in. In these early stages, the symptoms of radiation sickness and the symptoms of panic are identical.
0: So it's now one hour and 25 minutes after the attack and the fallout is starting to descend on Sheffield. The narrator tells us that the dust has actually come from Crewe. Crewe uh, is a town which lies south-west of Sheffield and is actually quite close to Nantwich, which you might know as the home of Hack Green Nuclear Bunker. Shout out to Hack Green for being patrons of this podcast, and there's an episode back in my archive about the history of Hack Green. Now, why would Crewe be a nuclear target? Well, it's a hugely important railway junction connecting much of the United Kingdom. I know that when I'm travelling to London from Glasgow, the train goes through Crewe. Almost everything which is travelling on the west coast Main Line will pass through the huge junction there. So if you hit Crewe, you're striking at probably the northern heart of Britain's railway network. Crewe also had industrial importance, hosting a large railway works, and also, in the 1980s, a Rolls-Royce plant. So we're at roughly one and a half hours after the initial nuclear attack, and we have a ground burst at Crewe, which is blowing fallout to Sheffield. And if you wanted to pepper a bunch of northern English cities with fallout as a secondary effect of your attack, then Crewe is a sound choice. Of course, you can't dictate where the fallout from an explosion will drift, as that depends on the wind direction and the weather conditions on the day. So get yourself a target which nestles right in the centre of a bunch of other cities, and then, whichever way the wind is blowing on the terrible day, you're bound to catch something in your path. If you look at crew on Google Maps, it almost has a ring of big cities all around it. To its north is Liverpool, to the slight northeast is Manchester, far north takes you to our Sheffield, and then swinging to the south we have Birmingham. You've also got Stoke, Derby and Nottingham scattered around it. The map here is chock-a-block in this part of England, and that's of course one of the reasons why Britain would have been so vulnerable, so doomed in any nuclear exchange, because we have nowhere to flee. We're too small and too busy. A target lies around every corner, over every hill. And we have no gigantic plains or steppe which might offer a haven from fire and fallout. No, in Britain, everything is connected to everything else. Threads. The narrator also tells us that the explosion at Crew was a ground burst. And we've previously discussed the difference between a nuclear ground burst and a nuclear air burst. Both have different effects depending on what you're trying to inflict on your enemy. An air burst, where the bomb, of course, explodes in the air, is best for widespread blast. The shockwave being up in the air will run out unimpeded, causing destruction over a wider area. But a ground burst is different. As the explosion actually touches the ground, it will gouge parts of the ground, it will suck up all that debris and carry it up into its mushroom cloud, where it will become radioactive and will later descend back to Earth as fallout. So the bomb at Crew is a ground burst. And its fallout drifts northeast to Sheffield where it starts to descend about an hour and a half later. Talking about weather and nuclear fallout, I recommend the December episodes from my archive on nuclear winter. So threads portrays the fallout as visible white dust settling on the ruins like a thin snow. This seems quite accurate given that the fallout dust is the pulverised remains of cities, houses, people. It is a physical thing. Some people portray fallout as a kind of invisible poison force, and yes, some of the particles will be invisible to the naked eye. But you could certainly see some of it, especially the dust that comes down first, the heavier particles, as a visible dust. And this is how the fallout is portrayed in Threads. And it's also how the, in real life, the unfortunate Japanese sailors on board the Lucky Dragon experienced fallout. They said it was like a a fine, crunchy sand. So the heavier particles would descend first and the imperceptible stuff would drift down later. The famous uh, Protect and Survive government information films also portray fallout as white visible flakes which twitch and wince across the screen to a shrieky sound effect. Here's a clip.
1: The most widespread danger from nuclear explosions is fallout. Fallout is dust that is sucked up from the ground by the explosion. Fallout can kill. Since it can be carried for great distances by the winds, it can eventually settle anywhere. So no place in the United Kingdom is safer than any other. The risk is as great in the countryside as in the towns. Nobody can tell where the safest place will be. So you are just as safe in your own home area as anywhere else. In fact, you are far better off at home because it is the place you know and where you are known. So, stay where you are.
0: So back to threads, and the narrator tells us the attack has broken most of the windows in Britain, and many roofs are open to the sky. That brings a whole host of problems to the survivors, such as how to keep warm, how to guard your house and its precious stockpiled food against looters. But it also means you'll have trouble... Protecting yourself from the fallout now descending. The Protect and Survive advice told you to assemble an inner refuge. That's the (laughs) solution of propping your doors against the wall and crouching underneath. It told you to assemble this inner refuge and to position it inside a fallout room. And that should be a room in the house which is furthest from outside walls. So if you do have such a room, which has no external walls or windows... And if you've been able to do that, your fallout room might, yes, still be intact. But if the rest of the house has lost its roof and the windows are broken, then the fallout could creep into the house, across the threshold, along the hall, gathering on the carpet and piling up like a filthy snowdrift outside your fallout room door. Your house cannot be the refuge the government implied it would be. You are better off in your own home, they said. Yeah, that's true. As long as your home is outside the blast and fire zones and as long as your home is not in the path of a fallout bloom and as long as your home has retained its roof and windows and there aren't rioters and looters outside and no disease springs up and you're cool living in a twilight wasteland with the wreck of civilization and the loss of everything you loved and knew? Then, and only then, will the government advice be correct?
1: You are better off in your own home. Stay there.
0: (laughs) And now we turn to something horrible well something else horrible it's all horror now until the credit roll at the end of the film we learn about the early onset of radiation sickness here's the narrator again
1: in these early stages the symptoms of radiation sickness and the symptoms of panic are identical <laughs>
0: Yes, amongst all the other hideous things our survivors have to contend with, there is the distressing fact that they are now penned together in small, airless, cramped refugees and basements and fallout rooms as they begin to suffer diarrhoea and vomiting. Mick Jackson, the director of Threads, looked at this Dreadful unpleasantness in his BBC documentary, A Guide to Armageddon, which he made a couple of years before Threads. And part of the documentary involved shelter experiments, where he asked people to actually build and then live inside government-approved fallout shelters of the early 1980s. One couple kept a video diary of how bloody unpleasant it was being trapped together in the gloom with no fresh air, Having to squeeze past one another or to squat over a bucket whenever you had to use the toilet. Add to that the smells and sounds of radiation and panic induced vomit and diarrhea, and it must soon become unbearable. The narrator of the documentary asks how long you'd be able to endure it. Wouldn't you want to go outside, despite the danger, for some air, or even just for the curiosity of? seeing what the world above looked like. It is an excellent documentary, and you can see how threads grew from it. Here's a clip.
2: How would you cope in this confined space for two weeks with vomiting and diarrhea? There would be many such uncertainties. Above all, what would be outside? Even though you knew it might be radioactive and deadly, Could you resist the temptation to go out and look? And when you finally did, after two weeks, what would you find? A world you recognized, or a wasteland for which little in your experience had prepared you? After an all-out attack, how much of that complex world you now take for granted would still be there? Sanitation, water supply, high-technology medicine, doctors, electricity. Back to Threads, and we can see both
0: our families, the Kemps and the Becketts, in their shelters. The Becketts, of course, faring much better as they have a big, sturdy Victorian villa and they're down in the basement, whereas the working-class Kemps, well, their pokey little terraced house has been peeled apart by the blasts like a rotten brown banana. Both of the fathers are vomiting, and in the Beckett household, in the basement of the Victorian house, the grandmother is tearful and ashamed, implying in a very genteel way that she has hideous diarrhoea. Her daughter in law, Ruth's mother, comforts her, and Mr. Beckett wipes his mouth to inquire about Ruth, his pregnant daughter. Ruth, are you all right? But Ruth is already psychologically drifting away from everyone. She's wrapped in a blanket and selfishly guzzling the bottled water. And when her father speaks to her, she shuffles around and turns her back on him and keeps on drinking. And then, of course, this is a uh, very indelicate and it's another reason why Threads is so powerful because it doesn't shy away from this. Ruth is ordered by her spluttering vomiting dad to get up and help do something he says so her mum asks her to please come and help clean up poor old grandma and her messy bed and when Ruth bends over the beds she sees the result and she, she just exclaims in, in disgust she turns away covers her mouth and turns away And if you look closely, the the poor grandmother who's lying on the bed is clutching her blanket to her mouth in shame and she peeks up at Ruth and almost flinches with the shame of it all and burrows deeper into the blanket and she sobs. She's so humiliated and it's, it's awful to see. And bravo to Threads for not flinching from this aspect of nuclear war. The scene... It really upsets me because the poor old grandmother, she's so embarrassed and it seems that these experiences often might get forgotten about in her talk of nuclear war because we might be so obsessed with the horror, with the overwhelming aspects that we might forget the more subtle humiliations and the quiet but deep stress of things like this. If you have the stomach for it, there is more information on toilet habits and hygiene in my podcast archive, in the episode called The Smell of Nuclear War. Another interesting point in this scene is that Ruth's mother doesn't flinch from the unpleasant task of cleaning up Granny, and maybe that's because she's a mother, and so has had the messy and stinky experiences of cleaning up baby poo and vomit. Maybe you get used to that as a a parent, and as a woman with caring responsibilities, whereas poor young Ruth who is pregnant but has not yet experienced motherhood. Maybe in her mind, with her privileged middle-class upbringing, childbirth and child-rearing was all about rainbows and fulfilment and cute baby booties and tiny guardians. Maybe she had idealised it and hadn't considered the more grim aspects. Well, here is her first experience with something grim which emanates from the body and Poor Ruth is not up to the task. She turns away, lets her mum deal with it. But as we know, she will soon be alone, and turning away, handing it over to someone else, is not a luxury she will soon have. The scene changes. Uh, we are now on Friday, May 27th, which is one day after the attack. We're in the Kemp household. They were once a family of five, They are now only two, the mum and the dad. Their three children have gone. We're never given the satisfaction of knowing the fates of Alison and Jimmy. Which I think is a great move, because it's nuclear war. Why should there be neat endings and satisfaction and resolution? Those characters just vanish. As for their third child, Michael, well, what's happened to him? We last saw him uh, hunkered in the corner of the aviary in the garden, crying as the sirens blared and tiny birds hopped about on his arms and head. A really unsettling mixture of horror and a cute, almost disney childhood image, calling to mind, uh, for me at least, the helpful little birds of things like Snow White and Cinderella who help you fold the laundry and do the housework. So, Mrs Kemp is burned and sagging in the corner of her inner refuge and she's sobbing weakly for Michael and her brave husband, Bill Kemp still retching and vomiting says that he'll go outside and look for him Here's a clip We've Michael. Michael,
1: I've got to find him. You, Bill. You, you stop here and... I've got to find him. I'll go and look for him. I've got to come. No, you, you stop here, no, love. I'll only be out a few minutes. Lord, Lord. Stop here, Lord. No, Please, I'll no, go I've
2: look for him. No, I've got to come. No. Oh, come Help me. Bill. All right. <laughs>
0: The Kemp's uh, claw and stumble out of their ruined house and into the remains of their garden. And as they raise their eyes to the devastation outside, poor Mr Kemp just says, Oh my God. In the midst of the blackened rubble in the garden, they see one of Michael's legs and his little trainer sticking out. They try to shift the bricks and Pull him out, but he's obviously dead. The scene changes and we're back in the bunker below Sheffield Town Hall. It was not a purpose-built bunker, it was just a basement area, which they hurriedly kitted out with desks, a portable toilet and some bedding. And, as we might expect, it is not holding up well under nuclear attack. Black dust is creeping in through the vents, and the staff are... Grimy, exhausted, and very, very tetchy. Even in the midst of the foul air in the bunker, there are still ashtrays around the place. It is the 80s, after all. Uh, And they have stubbed out cigarettes inside them. It seems crazy to be smoking in such a place, but maybe the air is already filthy. A few cigarettes will hardly make a difference. It just seems like a strange thing to do, but that's obviously represents the big gulf in smoking culture between now and now and um, the early 80s. So the staff are tasked with sorting out Sheffield's coordinating rescue, getting the emergency services organised, distributing rationed food, medicine. And they're trying to do all that whilst they are choked and exhausted, stressed and arguing, and connected to the world above by a dreadful, crackling radio. There are no roads left, one of the staff cries. People are coming to him with demands, we need this, we need that, get the trucks, get the fire engines, get the police. Every scrap of rescue effort all depends on one key thing though and that is passable roads. How can help and aid and rescue, if it still exists, get where it's needed if there are no roads left? He says it with exasperation, as if he's trying to drum this unthinkable thought into people's heads. Stop coming at me with your demands! There are no roads left! Meanwhile, over in a quieter corner of the bunker, Clive Sutton, the council leader, is standing by the huge map of Sheffield and a colleague is plotting circles on it. Circles of devastation, showing the various ground zeros and the blast circumference. Clive uh, points to a bit of the map called Baslow and asks, what about this area? Oh, his colleague says anyone there is done for. They're in a direct line from Crew. As Clive receives this information, the camera shifts to his desk with a framed photo of his wife upon it. And poor Clive just stands before the map and he hangs his head. A reminder that every member of staff down there, stressed and filthy and at breaking point, is also coping with the knowledge that their own families are above ground, subject to the firestorms and the fallout. And Clive's family are obviously in Baslow. Draw a diagonal line from Crewe, where the ground burst occurred, to Sheffield, where the fallout has drifted, and it cuts right through lovely little Baslow, which is a pretty Yorkshire village. Its location probably means that its residents have suffered the worst fate. Too far from the ground zeroes of Sheffield or Crew to be killed with merciful speed, and now lying directly under a fallout plume. They will have died of radiation sickness. We end our four minutes back with the guy who's trying to impress upon his colleagues that there are no roads left. Everyone is crowding round him, trying to plead their case. My team need this, my guys need that. He looks like he's on the verge of punching someone. Then a colleague butts in and says, in a very weary voice, I've just had a message through from Ribble Valley Police. They've managed to get some vehicles out on the roads, but they're nearly out of fuel. Okay, so if it's not one problem, it's another. The important thing to bear in mind here is that the police force of Ribble Valley, who have some roads but no fuel, are not in the vicinity of Sheffield. Ribble Valley police cover the neighbouring county of Lancashire. According to their website, the furthest east their jurisdiction stretches towards Sheffield is the town of Colne, which is actually quite far to the northwest of Sheffield, Indeed, Leeds, Liverpool and Manchester are all closer on the map to the Ribble Valley police area, and yet they've had to contact Sheffield to beg and forage for fuel. That implies that there is no answer, nothing, from any of those great northern cities, Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester. Silence. And so they've had to reach out to Sheffield with a crackling old radio, who may have fuel, but they've got no roads. And so it all comes back to that one thing. Without roads, they can't get the fuel to the Ribble Valley Police. Without passable roads, your resources, your surviving resources, are quite useless. So that's the end of our latest four minutes of threads. I hope you enjoyed it. The film is available to buy on DVD or Blu-ray. And I believe it's streaming on a few different platforms. So do seek it out if you haven't seen it. And let me thank all my patrons for donating money to this podcast. This week a special shout out for Jeremy R who increased the amount he donates each month. Thank you Jeremy. If you want to become a patron of the podcast support my work and get access to extra podcast episodes please look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo and remember you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDivill, on my website juliemcdowell.com and on Facebook as Nuclear Brisson So thank you all for listening and I'll be back next week.